Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Ear Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetearstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. Welcome back to season two of Garden People. My guest today is Tiffany Jones of Blama Flower Farm. Tiffany is a grower and florist in San Clemente, California, who is building a new farm in Nevada where she'll be focusing on her passion, zinnia breeding and seed development. Her many followers who tune in for multi-part videos of zinnia breeding will be happy to know that her book on the same is almost ready. A self-described plant nerd, Tiffany has poured her inspiring energy and exhaustive research into this publication, and I know you'll join me in saying that I can't wait to see the finished product. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And so my first question is, how did you come to this work at Balma Flower Farm? What was your professional journey? My professional journey is long because I've lived a long time. Mm -hmm. So I started basically, if I maybe if I go in reverse, it'll sure. make more sense. So I've been doing Gloma about four years. I've lived in Southern California my whole life. Everything grows here. So I came with this innocent attitude. I can grow anything. Um, before that, I was a mom and that was my favorite job in the world. Before that, I was a teacher which I loved, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And before that, I got a degree in landscape architecture. And before that, I started by studying horticulture, ornamental horticulture, and switched. And during that time, I was able to take course in floral design. It was one of the electives they offered for that major. It was at Cal Poly Pomona, and I loved it. And before that, we lived in Irvine when it was the middle of nowhere. So I kind of spent some time growing up where there were fruit trees and outdoors, and I had an opportunity to have a little garden there. And I grew some tomatoes and I remember smushing up tomato worms and things like that, it was horrible. But before that, when I was very little, they no one knew I couldn't see. I had horrible vision as a kid and they didn't know. But one, you know, most of the world was gray or whatever was up close I could see. But there was, we lived in Fountain Valley at the time, and there was a tomato field on one side, strawberries on the other, and corn on the other. We lived in a little condo complex, seven people, one and a half bathrooms. And behind our complex was this little shop. And so when we went out onto Harbor Boulevard, which is the major street, Disneyland was down the street. We would sit on the fence and watch the fireworks. But when we went that particular direction, there was this little building right behind our complex and it was basically a garage and the garage door opened and they would push flowers out just like a kind of like I think of Conroy's, you know, like a little stair step stadium of flowers. And when that was open and we would drive by, I could see it. Mm. I could see the colors, the clusters of colors, you know, on the different tiers. And I think that's where it started. My love of color and color combinations. And then in that same neighborhood, my dad one time had just enough money to buy three gladiolus bulbs. So he grew those three and he said, oh my gosh, they were so skinny and so far apart and they didn't amount to anything in a way. You know, like they didn't have the impact he was looking for and I'll never forget that lesson. 
the idea that flowers can have an impact and that where you plant them matters. I was probably six, but in that same complex, I also, because they were condos, we had alleys behind and everybody's garages were on an alley and every so many houses, they would have a little dirt area. Most of them were dirt because of course, kids would come around and chop off the tree limbs and all that. So one of them had a peach gladiolus in it and I could not help myself. I picked that <laughs> flower and I ran home with it. <laughs> And I felt so guilty. Look, mom, look what I gave for you, you know, and I just had to have it. And she told me now, Tiffany, you mustn't pick other people's flowers. So I learned that too at a very young age. But I was clearly drawn to flowers very, very early. I remember I can still picture the house in our neighborhood that had Martha Washington geraniums and I would just rub my nose in them. You know, even when I could see, they finally figured it out at the end of second grade, when I could see it stick my yeah. nose in there and smell them and just feel the texture of the petals and notice the leaves. I was just a plant nerd from birth. It can't get away That's from so it. That's wonderful. Can't. So once my daughter went off to college and I was an empty nester, I need to figure out what else I want to do. That was my favorite job in the world. It went away. I worked for Michaels for a little while as their designer, their floral designer, had a blast. My manager was amazing. And then Michaels got rid of that position. They don't have designers anymore. And so I was floundering. What do I do? It was another great job. And I had always kind of talked about wanting to have a farm. I always thought it would be a vineyard, though. I don't know why. I don't even drink <laughs> wine. So, And then I saw that my sister-in-law turned me on to an article about Danny at Rose Story mm -hmm. Farm. And I call her Danny because I don't know her well enough to call her Danny. Anyway, a name I've heard yeah. her refer to as. So seeing the beauty of her her website and all those roses just rekindled all this stuff that I had been kind of swerving around. There was a point when I had my own floral design business at 19. Forgot about that part. After I took that floral class, I did flowers for friends and family, but then I switched to landscape architecture and it got really busy and I just couldn't do it anymore. And then I got this book about foraging but it was about making floor arrangements from going out and foraging. And then I saw, of course, Aaron's, Aaron Benzikane's pictures on Instagram and you too could grow in a very small space. And I thought mm -hmm. I could, well, she was talking about two acres. Right. <laughs> I don't have two acres, but I remember having this moment and I don't know if this is the time, but I was really conflicted about starting this idea and all of a sudden, I'm carrying laundry in my bedroom, and I went, what if this fear, I just pictured this giant frame, like a nice frame, and all that's in it is a layer of tissue paper. And I said, what if my fear is just that tissue paper? That's all it is. It's not absolute fear. Like, everyone's afraid that a lion is going to eat them when it's running towards them, right? To me, that's an absolute fear. This fear is a fear that not everybody has, so it can't be a real mm -hmm. danger. There's no danger. It's just a fear. And I thought, what if I just walked through that tissue paper? What would happen? The tissue paper would tear a well and I would be fine mm -hmm. on the other side. And when I had that epiphany, I went, that's it. I'm doing it. I've been growing flowers here forever. I might as well get paid for it. <laughs> so I started with, I went to a local nursery and I bought $100 worth of dahlias. I remember it was February 5th and I bought them 
I had them in a bag by my window. I thought I can grow these. I couldn't get rid of the one I was growing out front because I never dug it up or anything. I didn't even think about it. All my work in horticulture and landscape architecture did not translate to farming. It doesn't, it's a fabulous, fabulous foundation. But we did not study how to sprout a dahlia and what it needs and how to get the most from it. It's been a long yeah. journey. <laughs> That's so wonderful, this idea of walking through the tissue. I love that. It's been something I've had to remind myself of sure, a few times. Of course. What is your garden space like? I know you're in sort of in, in transition, which we will also discuss. We live on very unusual one quarter of an acre, very close to the beach in San Clemente. So we can walk down to the beach. It's a steep hill, don't get me wrong, but we can't. And I wanted a house when we moved here. My daughter had left our old house. Our old house, I had really nailed the, the yard was beautiful. I had garden rooms and I put it all in. I trimmed every hedge. I mowed the lawn. I yeah. was dying. I was like, I got to get out of this. <laughs> beautiful. So I wanted a house, a smaller house, small kitchen, small yard. And we bought a medium-sized house, huge kitchen, relatively large yard for where we are. And I actually grow in about, I think I calculated it somewhere around 1,800 square feet. So I have some straight rows out front, no more curvy lines and garden mm -hmm. rooms for me. And then we converted the back. We have a small area that's just for our family. And then there's a little raised portion in the back. We have all kinds of fruit and vegetables too. But then I have several rows back there, about 20 feet long. It's not a lot of space. And my neighbor loved gardening, but she's passed the ability to be able to do that anymore. So she was letting Great. me grow over there too. And that was another couple hundred square feet. Yeah. So not a lot. Not the two acres I thought I could right, make living right. on. <laughs> and what is your daily practice there? Are you still doing everything yourself? Oh yeah. My daily practice varies wildly by the time of the year. So right now my daily practice is weeding. I've already planted all my ranunculus, my anemones, my foxgloves, yeah. my snaps. They're in, they've been growing. So we do two flips a year. We never stop. It's more like cyclical. So I have times where it's crazy, turn, flip, amend, plant like crazy, and yeah. then it's wait. And then it goes into harvest and start new things and then right. flip and all that. So it, yeah. it's kind of <laughs> Are you still growing for your floristry work or are you going to pull that back? I am trying really hard not to be a florist at all. I keep getting <laughs> sucked into it. So I love growing. I like being outside. I like starting things. I like experimenting. So I'm really trying to focus more on that. But I'm still growing now. So my business model is my first year, I did everything that came my way. Within a year, I decided I wasn't doing any more free work. Yeah. I couldn't do it. It was too much. And I had to really start narrowing things down. I mean, I did everything. I did the succulent jewelry. I did every holiday. Anybody asked me for flowers, I'd run down the market, I'd get what they needed or supplement with what I had. I did not say no. I had back to back to back major events and I am not a spring chicken. <laughs> and I figured out, I also had a weekly subscription. So I had one woman who wanted a $150 arrangement every single week. And then when I had dahlias, she bought mm -hmm. all my dahlias. So I was running to the market every week. I was doing everything and farming by myself. <laughs> and trying to figure it all out. At the end of the year, I, I kind of said, I got to rethink this. I got to really, really rethink. And that's when I narrowed down. So my business model now is I sell wholesale and that's it. 
and I'm in a flower farmer group and they're like, I'm not quite sure how that works because they're used to getting a different price mm -hmm. than I am. But I sell everything I have. I harvest, I take it to the market, they buy everything, I leave. I have time to go to lunch with my friends. So for me, I've chosen a model that works for me and allows me to still have life. So I'm not at the point where I have to make a living off every dime that I make. I mean, I don't have to support myself with this. Yeah. So that's still going on here. That is still happening here yeah. in California. Okay. And then in your non-working part of your garden with your fruit trees and everything, what are some of the things that you're growing that you're enjoying? Oh gosh, everything. It's like we eat in the yard. It's like we look around the yard at what's, you know, this season it's this yeah. side, this season it's that side, this season it's that side. So we actually started with that. And that's when we went totally organic when we moved here because we were eating what we grew. We started with these, they're called keyhole gardens and they use them in Africa and in Texas when it was really dry. Are you familiar with keyhole gardens? No, tell me. Okay, so it's basically a round structure you can use anything. So the idea is you don't have to have anything fancy, but you elevate the soil to kind of a peak in the middle and you put something down in the middle and you throw everything you pick that you harvest out of your little keyhole garden. The idea is whatever scraps you have, you throw in the middle. So if you have something that a bug ate, you throw it in the middle, you throw it in the middle. So, and then you water in the middle. And the idea is you use much less water that way and it goes and it irrigates everything. It's called the keyhole because you're supposed to put a spot take one little pie shape that's not garden so you can reach the kind of recycle bin in the middle, but we're so tall, yeah. we, just, yeah. well, we just do a circle. <laughs> so we started with a lot of those and actually had to take some out so that I yeah. had room for flowers, but we still have two and we grow, for our climate, tomatoes are tough. We don't get enough heat. So we grow mm -hmm. a lot of cherry tomatoes. They're unbelievable. And my husband has really been the one doing all that work. But we, we eat the tomatoes, kale, lettuce, the usual suspects. But our, our real passion is the fruit. Wonderful. So we have key lime. We make key lime pie and blood orange. <laughs> I'm looking out the window at it. With blood oranges, the house came with a great big tangelo tree. And then we have passion fruit down one fence. I actually harvest that and take that to the market. And we get the fruit off of it, both. So it's a twofer. And then we have blackberries against the back fence. And we are like bears in blackberry season. <laughs> we have avocados, peach tree, even just snack. Like I never see the strawberries. The strawberries, I never see them. He's eating them as he's watering or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's nothing better than the fruit and the vegetables you get out of your own yard. It's just the best. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned somewhere that you, or rather when you switched to grow this sort of organic growing practices, you saw a difference in your flowers. Is that true? Yes. Our soil is absolute clay. There is a reason they build missions here. I've seen it. I've gone down, we've dug, we removed a little piece of concrete at one point and dug down and we actually did a little experiment where half of the bed we kind of amended and the other half of the bed I mean, to me now, it's kind of amended. Right. And then the other half of the bed, we didn't amend. And it was gray clay. And it was horrible. Nothing. It was so obvious, you know, the yeah. difference. And then we started doing the organic matter. And we went to a lecture up at Rogers Gardens in New Beach. They had a guy named Steve Gatto. He was sort of the tomato distributor to all the nurseries. He was the tomato guru. And he talked about the lasagna method. And that's how they grew their tomatoes. 
and it clicked. I thought, there's no way we're going to amend this clay. It's light gray. You know, we've got to go up and we've just got to, there's no rototilling that's going to take care of that. It just yeah. won't. He talked about also, I thought this was really interesting. He said, when you put your, your amendments out, when you do the lasagna method, which, you know, is you don't dig, you're just, you're covering the whole bed rather than putting nutrients in a hole, you're putting the nutrients over the whole bed because the roots don't just stay in the hole. The roots go everywhere and you want them to go everywhere and establish all those wonderful connections, right? Right. So he talked about how the effective way to do that is to put your amendments. So I use something called optimize. It's uh, that compressed, I want to say it's, it's like a, it's char, but compressed. Mm -hmm. And so it turns clay over in half the time it would take to add amendments. So instead of 15 years, seven years. So Mm -hmm. use that a little bit of organic flower food, a little bit of organic nitrogen. But his point was put that down on something organic. Mm -hmm. Don't put it on the top and leave it exposed. Don't put it on the clay. It's not going to do any good. Put it on your already amended bed. And then put something organic over the top of that. Make a sandwich out of your amendments. And that way they decompose better. They're more available to the plants and you'll get much better bang for your buck. So that's what we've been doing ever since. I till nothing. I till nothing. And since we've been doing that, it's completely different soil. First of all, you can see it. I can work it. I can pull things out of it. I'm not using a hammer and a chisel to get through that clay anymore. And it's completely different. And and even understanding things like miracle grow and and the salts and the things that happen because of that that exacerbate the soil problems. Just learning all that stuff was really interesting to me. We never covered any of that in school when I was in landscape architecture, or it was NPK. That's all anybody talked about. Yeah, that's wonderful that you've been able to find those resources and educate yourself about it. It's amazing how different your plants are Mm -hmm. when they're actually thriving, not just surviving. Right. (laughs) You have this exciting move coming up. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yes. So it started because my husband's company is expanding. They were looking in the general Reno, Nevada, right on those Sierras area. So we finally found something. It's a teeny tiny farmhouse. Teeny tiny. It is a wreck, but it's on an acre. And the back acre is undeveloped, but it has a shop on it. Okay. The front acre is all grass, trees. I'm adding perennials like crazy. Mm -hmm. There's an irrigation ditch that runs through it. And it's in a very rural area. It's very different than Southern California at the beach. But it's 15 minutes from civilization. I think we have always flipped houses, but we didn't know that's what it was called. Yes. He's an engineer, super handy. We've always worked. We've always bought inexpensive and improved. And I think it must just be in our blood because we bought probably the worst house in the worst condition we've ever bought. Mm -hmm. Needs the most work. Yes. Right now it's sitting there with, it's gutted. We've done a lot of the work ourselves. We had to get in young reinforcements because we're old. And it has paper walls right now covering up the insulation till we can get the foundation fixed. Right. (laughs) Because that's how bad it is. Yeah. But we fell in love with it. 
And, you know, they would say the foundation's the most important thing. And we just said, no, the land is the most important thing. And the water rights in Nevada are the most important thing. And it's so different. It's zone six on the USDA map. But when we went up there, we, I asked every garden place, I found every nursery right away. And they all said zone four because of the wind mm, and the, it's so dry. So I said, well, what grows in zone four? And yeah. I went, oh, peonies, lilacs, nine barks, spirea, paniculate hydrangeas, all the things I can't grow here, grow there. So it's kind of like starting over in a weird way. Mm -hmm. So I have to investigate everything all over again. What do I do with these? How do I plant them? How do I store them? Right. You know, the whole thing. But it's a whole new, it's a garden world I've always loved yeah. and admired and thought was wonderful and could never participate in. Right. So it's kind of fun to be able to think about something so different. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really exciting. Any place that you're taking inspiration from, any books or people or gardens that you're drawing from? Mostly where I am now, I would say it was all a matter of practicality. It was, where is the sun? Where is the shade? What's our maximum bang for the buck for this work we're going to do to redo the yard? You, know, you have to be really pragmatic yeah. when you're in a really small space. Yeah. This one, it's pragmatic also. So the lot is an acre, but the back half is a half acre that's undeveloped and we are developing it. Mm -hmm. So I got to plan out exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. And it's very simple. It's also pragmatic based on the way the wind blows and how things are going to support each other better because they do get quite a bit of wind there. Sun exposure, obviously, and then access to the shop back there. So I'm just having all my rows parallel to the building and then a center row down the middle so I can bring everything in and then bring everything to the, to the center of the lot and then bring all the flowers into the building yes. for cooling. I don't have any electricity yet, but we did buy a sprinter van. And I did hear Joe, is it Joe Schmidt? Joe, someone's going to listen to this and go, no, it's that guy. Yeah. And he talked about using his sprinter van as a cooler because it's a diesel. You can have it on idle for the clean diesel. They have yeah. an additive to them. So you can idle that thing for an hour and you use a tenth of a gallon of gas. Wow. I mean, it's just crazy. He would have it in the middle of his field and have his workers put everything, you know, his, his crew put everything into the buckets and then they put them in clean buckets and, and then it was packed and ready to go the next day. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, right. It's all there. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> and I, I have a natural inclination towards axial design because of my landscape architecture background. I love the classics, an English garden, a French garden, an Italian garden. And so where do I put that? I put it dead center. What am right. I going to have at the end of it? I'll have some sort of terminus, whether it's a tree or a beautiful shrub or a bench. You know, a bench is always fabulous at the end of a vista because yes. you just want to go sit there, right? Yes. So there will be little things like that in there. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, just that old, it's got to be practical first and then pull in whatever design concepts I can yeah. that still work. And that's all going to be zinnias. Wow. One bed of peonies and the rest of it's going to be developing my zinnias, just growing them out, trying to get as much seed as I can. Fantastic. What you have been sharing look incredible. So how did that start for you? Oh my gosh. That has been 
a huge unexpected surprise. No clue. No clue. Any, I mean, <laughs> it's just silly. It takes forever to build up a, a following and then all of a sudden, blammo, you know. Right. <laughs> I had no idea people would even care. You know, I've been plodding along for a long time. So that shocked me. So for me, I'm a little farmer in a big pond, right? I'm in Southern California. There's tons of growers here, loads of competition, professional growers, people who are bringing up stuff from Mexico. I cannot compete with their prices. You know, they have different labor costs, different restrictions, whatever. So I was really trying to find a niche of what my wholesaler calls novelty flowers. So they have people who buy the basics and then they sprinkle in the novelties, right? The more expensive, nice things. And that way no one could compete with me, right? So because a large farm can't pivot as quickly as I can, I could say, okay, there's no way I can grow mums, but I can grow Chantilly snapdragons. I can grow something that they can't pivot to as quickly until it becomes, and then it's a novelty for a while and then I can do something else. So anyway, I was growing some zinnias and I looked at them and I went, these are the most amazing colors. Why don't they offer this color? Why can't I get just this color? I think it was a cactus in you. Mm -hmm. And I went, I just want that color. So I ripped everything out and I just saved the ones that were the colors I wanted. Mm -hmm. Naively thinking (laughs) that what I was going to get was those two colors. Oh, they weren't going to mix. No, I'm just going to get this color and this color. So the following, so I saved them, saved all the seed. No idea what I was doing. Didn't know the difference between floret seed and I mean, you just don't learn that stuff in what I studied. Anyway, so the next year I grew them out and they were all different and they were yellows and there were all different colors and purples and reds and I would just rip them out. And then I started looking it up. I started going, what is this pattern here? There's no pattern. This is mayhem and disorder. So I started <laughs> looking it up and the only thing I could find was the Zen man um, that would pop up over and over again on the internet. And there were different articles here and there, but there's nothing cohesive. And so he was on one of those garden.com threads and I found it and I read it and I started reading back and it takes forever to cycle back and go through all this. And it's not linear. And I'm a teacher. So I'm used to things being presented so that you can understand them. And this was just like a knot. And so I finally just pulled all the information by taking screenshots of it Mm -hmm. and printing it out hours and hours a notebook this big and i just read through the whole thing and then i would have a question and i'd have to go through the whole book my whole stack to find the answer because there was nothing in order so i finally said that's it and i took notes in every page of what they were about and then i went through and i numbered every page And then I made myself an index. Like these are the pages where this information is. And I didn't reorganize them because I wanted them in sequential order. I don't know why. I just didn't. And I went, okay, now I can look up what do I need to do when I have aphids, when I'm growing them indoors. And that's where I started learning. And then there were references to other books and articles. And then I started that dive. And then my daughter was like, are you writing a book? I said, no. And she said, well, it sure looks like, you know, kind of like like you're writing a book. You're going to write a book? And I said, well, I'm just doing this for me because Mm -hmm. I can't handle this stuff everywhere. She said, well, maybe somebody else would want to read about it. Yeah. And I went, I don't know why. You know, (laughs) because it was just my weird thing. 
I couldn't imagine there could be possibly an audience for it. Yeah. So I thought about what she was saying and I really thought about pulling all this information together so it made more sense to me even better. Mm -hmm. And there were concepts that were blowing my mind about genetics and stuff. So all that research, it just made sense to compile it all. So that's what I've been working on is getting this book together. And now that people have watched these videos, I guess there is an audience for it. There is. Yeah. There's a lot more to it than what I've presented. And some of it is just, you have to read it and think about it because it's mind scratching for me. But I really want to be able to share it with people now that I know anybody is interested so that they can do what I did without having to go through all the steps. <laughs> right. Without all the screenshots. And honestly, for me to be able to go to a wholesaler and say, I have these for you today. No one can compete with me. You know, no one else is going to bring in zinnias that look like mine. They're not going to be the colors. They're not going to be the forms because they're just growing out the other varieties. And I'm looking around. I have a little bit of an art background, too. And so I'm looking around. I'm going, that's not the color. Nobody wants those. Mm -hmm. Those are the, as far as designers go, as far as event floors go, which is huge here. Those aren't the colors they want. Those aren't Mm -hmm. the shapes they want. If I could just paint. I could give them all this. I'd sell everything I have every day and have no problem. I walk in with my head held high. I've got something decent and sell it all. So that's kind of, and now that there's interest in it, that's kind of where I'm heading is trying to develop. Because now I got people asking me for seeds. I'm like, why do you want my seed? But, you know, it takes time to develop it and get it stable and all that stuff. So that's kind of where I'm leaning at the new house. So the new house is kind of leaning for that whole project. Wonderful. Can you share any of the colors that you're the most excited about? Or what are you seeing coming up that you're hoping to share? Yeah, the soft blushy peach, the peaches, the warm peaches, the soft blushy peaches. I mean, there's just something about those colors. Remember I told you about that peach colored gladiolus? Drawn to it. It wasn't an obnoxious peach. It was peach and pink and a little bit of yellow. It was a warm, happy, loveliness. And I'm definitely drawn to those. I'm I was trying to work a little bit on a mustard. It's not going, I didn't have a lot and it's not going the direction I wanted it to go, but we'll see. It's, I'm learning a lot about how when you mix, it's not like mixing paint. When you mix a red and a white, I think in sweet peas, it works that way a little bit better. But in zinnias, you're gonna get whatever the, the lineage lets you have, right. you know? And if you put something good in there, you just grab it and try to hang on to those mm-hmm. genetics because it's a roller coaster. Right. It's not as crazy as dahlias. Dahlias are nuts, but zinnias are pretty bad too. Can you share what the differences and similarities are between the two? Because I know a lot of people are getting into breeding for dahlia. Sure. I'll try not to go too far into the weeds, but dahlias are definitely, they're what's called an octoploid. They have eight sets of chromosomes. So every living thing, almost every living thing has two. We have two, dogs have two, zinnias have two sets. So if you think of it like a pamphlet and every page is the number of chromosome it has, it has two of those sets of chromosome. Most zinnias, I should say. Dahlias have eight of those sets. So when those genes recombine, I mean, The odds, you think of how many bits of information are in one set, and then you multiply that by eight. Holy cow, the odds of getting anything that's any, it's like people, you're never going to get two alike. They can be close, but with zinnias, they have two sets of chromosomes, but occasionally they can have more. And sometimes that happens naturally, and sometimes it happens when people breed things so they can 
there's something called the tetraploid where it has four sets and tetraploids go fine with tetraploids, but when you mix them with a zinnia that only has two sets or a diploid, you end up with somebody like a mule, <laughs> you know, you can get yeah. a mule, can't make but more. very rarely can the mule have, is the mule fertile? And you can imagine in a zinnia breeding project, ending up with infertile seed is not good. That's the dead end of the line. So that's part of what I'm trying to write about too and help. I really want people to understand that they can grow their own zinnias, understand enough about how zinnias work because they're so inexpensive. They're everywhere. They're the number one flower in the world. That's grown everywhere. It's been to space on the space International Space Station. It's been everywhere. And they're so accessible. If you understand a little bit how they work, you can create your own specialty thing fairly easily, much faster, really, than almost any other plant. And I mean, a dahlia, you can take the tuber and clone right. it right away, but it still has needs time to become stable. But then you have an advantage in your market. You know, suddenly you're in demand. And I want small farmers to be able to have something, to be able to grow something or produce something or create something, first of all, that they love, that their customers enjoy, or that they just enjoy for themselves, or then also kind of have that little edge, you know, have a reason that people want to buy your flowers. You have something a little unique, a color that's a little bit more in demand. And that way you have more business. You can build your business. There's a little help, you know, it's not the whole thing, obviously, but it's a little help there to get you like I did to get that become invaluable to the people who you sell to, because you have something that they can't get anywhere yeah. else. And that's my goal now is to get that out so people understand a little right. bit better. You pretty much have to really study plant breeding and you have to know the difference. Every flower is different. Like we said, what's the difference between zinnias and dahlias? Dahlias, you can take a tuber and you have a clone. Zinnias don't make clones. Best you can do is a cutting and then you have to try to keep it alive. And so they're different. So you do need to understand the different mechanics of how they, yeah. how they work for sure. And if you had a specimen that you said, this is it, this is going to be my special one. And I know you kind of, it's hard to stop, right? You probably <laughs> say that about five, maybe oh, 15. Guilty. 25, right, right. But if you had. If, <laughs> 20 million boxes. <laughs> if you had, so if you had one. What are the steps from that flower to actually being able to one year bring it to market, kind of a small market, you know, sort of your small farmer idea? Sure. Well, you know, if, you're, if you've got several that you like and you're willing to sacrifice a few flowers, you can bring them the first year and hold on. You can, if you can save the seed from the first few and then sell mm -hmm. the rest, it sort of slows the plant down a little bit. You never know what's going to happen yeah. to a plant. So if I have something really special, I don't cut the flowers. But if I have, you know, its siblings are pretty yeah. close or kind of nice, but I really am not going to pursue those. I'll cut those yeah. and sell those because they're still going to be different than anything anybody yeah. else has got. But when you, from the time you take the seed, so let's say it's the end of the season and you're, you've got your seeds, you can start, you have to go through five to six generations to stabilize a seed. And what that means is you plant your seeds, you grow them out, you look at them and you only save the ones that look like the one you wanted or are the closest to the one you wanted. And you have to be ruthless and rogue the rest, get them out of there. You know, we call it culling. And then you save those seeds and you grow those out and save the best again. And you, by the third time, you're starting to see more and more of what you were mm -hmm. looking for, if it showed up again, ever. 
sometimes you grow them out and there's nothing like what you had. <laughs> what happened there? So obviously it was all very recessive right. genes that had showed up and didn't didn't choose to right. pop up again. Or you just didn't have enough seed to grow enough to find out. So in theory, if you were to take your seed, so you know there's also the green seed stage. So after a flower's been pollinated, you can actually pull out mature seed before it goes brown. If you took out your green seed and started them right away, nicked them, started them that day, and they grow, they do fine. Eight weeks, they're putting out another flower. Three weeks later, say you've got pollen on that flower a week after, so 10, nine, 10 weeks, you've got pollen, the flower's blooming, it gets pollinated. Three weeks later, you've got mm -hmm. another seed. So basically three months. So if you live, like there are people I speak to who lived in the Central Valley and they could do four generations in mm -hmm. a season because they had the warm nights and the warm days. Other people, you might get two in or three in or one in, and then you can move them indoors. So if I were to move them indoors, theoretically, every three months, I could be growing a new generation. It has not worked that way for me. I'm not warm enough here. Aphids get in the way. Powdery mildew gets in the way. <laughs> but theoretically, every three months, you should be able to get another generation going. Not theoretically, in optimum conditions, we'll say. And so the idea is in a year and a half, if everything went right and you had the good product the whole way and you don't have to abandon it for something else because something odd popped up or it didn't hold up, in a year and a half, you could theoretically have seed that you could then grow out and sell. I'm on about, a couple of my seeds are on fourth and fifth generations, which I'm so excited about, but I don't have a lot of that because you know, you're growing inside, you don't have, I have a teeny tiny greenhouse and I'm just trying to move things through the process without growing numbers. So then I have to hope all those seeds germinate, I get what I want and then collect those seeds and, and make it like an upside down pyramid, right. you know, bigger and bigger. So theoretically a year and a half, but that's pretty good compared to most things. Roses are 10 years. Yeah. You can only grow one a season, a year, period. You know, that's it. And if you don't get anything you like, you got to start over. So that's the other thing about zinnias. It can be quick if you have the desire and yeah. the facilities. Because you can grow 10 zinnias in a little... I have a little greenhouse with just lights and mats, no heater. And, you know, they'll grow and they'll flower and you can collect the seed. You have to pollinate mm -hmm. them by hand, but I can grow them and get flowers off of them and seeds off of them. That's exactly how I, how I've moved yeah. mine through. And in your new space, will the timeline change? How will you use those spaces? It's going to be very different. Our last frost is June 15th, wow. so Father's Day, essentially. Okay. And our first frost is September. Right, zone four. <laughs> so I, I brought some up last this last summer. I brought some zinnia seedlings up just to see what would happen. Yeah. You know, they were completely neglected. They did great. No powdery mildew. I am very happy to report right. after a year of powdery mildew. There's none. I'm so excited. So they got planted a little late, but they they withstood the first couple of light frosts pretty well. And then a hard frost came and they were gone. But so I'll definitely have a one season crop, but I also have the ability to grow them indoors. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll probably start them very, probably six to eight weeks early, mm -hmm. get them going so they're good size before I put them outside. 
And then once the last frost is over with, they're just going to grow, 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 make seed. You know, that's going to be the whole thing. And I haven't decided if I'm going to do just one variety or if I'm going to try to do several of them, because when I do that, I have to isolate them and provide pollinators. And that's just a lot of investment in materials and work. And Yeah. Would that require polytunnels and things to sort of, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Polytunnels or even insect netting. That's what right, I used right. here. I used insect netting. And then you have to really be on it. We found it hard to keep the pollinators alive much more than about 10 or 14 days. Mm-hmm. So then you're constantly buying new pollinators, yeah. putting them in there. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it was the spiders that were in there. Sure. Eating them. <laughs> They're like, this is awesome. <laughs> they can't fly away. I got it. Oops, there's a spider in my pollinator tunnel. Whoops. <laughs> the happiest spider. <laughs> yeah. It's like, thanks. <laughs> Come back anytime. <laughs> yeah. I figured that out after I pulled the net off and had 20 dead that's where they went yeah you have a few that you've already on the road with so you kind of don't need as much growing time in the same way that you do when you're starting yeah yes i have a few that are pretty far along and i think what i want to do is got a couple different ideas but one idea is i take my favorite one and i just mm-hmm. grow it out every seed i have or nearly every seed right, right. Gets some back but <laughs> Every seed I have room for and just grow it like crazy, let it go, let it go to seed, you know, really be able to see how it performs over many different plants, you know, to to have a good sample size of plants and see how they all do and how true it really is. That would be kind of ideal, I think. But then I have all my other little seeds going, what about me? (laughs) You want to see me too, you know? Oh, it's so hard. I love them all. I love them all. I've actually kind of contacted or been contacted by a couple people about maybe growing some of my seeds out for me. The hard part is when I have to tell them, can't grow any other zinnias if you grow my seed. And they, hmm, hmm, hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That's so short. So the farmer group I'm in, everybody's really enthusiastic about it. So I may be doing some distributing that way. Oh, fantastic. Maybe get some moved along a little bit that way. We'll see. I have nothing for sale. I have no way to sell anything. My website is not for people who are looking for this information. It's all on Instagram. So at some point, I'd like to be able to sell them, but it's just not yet. They've got to be ready. I don't want to, I don't need to take anybody's money for something that's not ready. That's just not right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's coming now. So that's exciting. I'm trying really feel like a duck paddling underwater so hard, but I'm not getting very, you know, it just takes time. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's wonderful though. People are so sweet, so kind, so thoughtful, so enthusiastic. And wow, I mean, it's a little overwhelming, you know, I'm just puddling along doing my thing. And then, you know, you never know what people are going to be interested in. I love it though. I'm so excited because I'm such a plant nerd to find other plant nerds. Absolutely. In the world. <laughs> well, and your book, I think that is going to be such a huge resource because, as you say, other people can do whatever they want with it. You know, that's really. Yeah. When I first started, it was really exciting though. I would read for hours and reading, 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 finding Johnny's website and looking at all their sheets. On, they have so much information there and just trying to sort through what I needed and figure out what I wanted to grow, how that applied to me, given the space I have. I was fortunate I have the support of my husband, who's, he went to Berkeley, he went to Cal, go Bears. 
he's an engineer, so he could figure everything out. You know, I didn't have to figure out any of the mm -hmm. engineering part of it. Built me a seed sorter. He just saw it online and built it. That's great. Thank you. It happens like that too. He's unbelievable. Wonderful partnership. That's great. It, it really is neat. It really is neat. I think part of that is that whole, we've always, we've always bought houses that needed work. We've always upgraded them. We've always tried to improve wherever we've bought. And it's also what you can afford, but we've always done the work ourselves as well. So when you do those things, you learn more. When you grow the flowers, instead of thinking about the flowers, yep. you get better at it. When you touch the stuff and dig the holes and put it in and try the seeds, see what works and what doesn't work. It's a lot of trial and error. For exactly. Sure. Exactly. Well, when do you have a general timeline for when the book might be available? Okay. <laughs> well, my goal was to have it done by November and that didn't happen. So I can't promise anything, but I'm trying to get it out before the next season of Zing yeah. is somewhere in the world. I just really want to be able to share the information. It's so much from so many different kinds of places. Putting it all together for myself, I might as well share it. Absolutely. You're a plant nerd. Yeah. I can't help it. I cannot help it. That's great. I have been a plant nerd. My, I have a painting. My brother painted me when he was in high school. He's an incredible artist. So he did a painting of me coming out of a, I'm a little kid. I'm coming out of a flower pot. Mm. I'm, it's literally my head. And then I'm turning into a plant in a flower pot. Sweet. And I'll never forget that because I felt like he's, he knew me. He did know me after all. Totally. He knew who I was. He saw me. Yes. This started from a very young age. I was very young in the pictures. So that was pretty neat. That's so sweet. And based on, on your experiences, how do you think we can bring more people into the garden, either professionally or personally? Catch them young. Yeah. Absolutely. Catch them young. Some friend of ours brought, their daughters brought their grand, their kids, their, mm -hmm. their friend's grandkids over. And they had wanted to see the farm, you know, my farm here mm -hmm. in St. Clemente. And, oh gosh, it was so funny because they were trying to ask me questions. <laughs> I'm so bad because I've worked with kids forever too. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? We're going to take these guys. I'm going to answer their, we're, hey guys, look at this. I kept ignoring the moms yeah. and showing the kids stuff and saying, let's do this now. Let's do this. I just want to play with them. You know, yeah. let's dig. Look at there's raspberries. Let's go eat them. You know, mm -hmm. I want to get, I love working with kids. And I think when you catch them young and you include them in the process, mm -hmm. then they get the bug. I mean, honestly, you can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. Right. But when you catch them young and expose them young, it's not so foreign. And as little kids, we develop building blocks of learning. Mm -hmm. And when you have kids who get those experiences, they're not going to completely forget them. They may not be conscious, right. but they're there and they've had that experience. So now they can build on it mm -hmm. and catching them young. I think they're just so filled with wonder anyway, and everything is exciting and interesting. And, and when you can eat it and then we went and picked flowers and made little, little vases for their moms, you know, and look, look what, you know, give that to your mama. She's going to love it. Give that to your mama. Yeah. And they feel like they have some investment in it because they can pick the things, they can eat the things, they can give to someone else, they can share with someone else. So that's a big part of it. It may be because I just started so young, but I think people will come to it when they realize it's something that they, that their soul needs, that they need, when it's available, easily accessible, when it is in front of them helps, right? That they're aware of it. 
And I think those are the big things. If it's they're aware of it, they find a need for it, and they've had a chance to experience it maybe earlier in life and have a good positive experience, that's helpful. Right. I'm not much at telling other people what to do or what they should be interested in. If they're <laughs> interested in it, like go for it. But if someone asks me, can we see, I am all over. Come over. We'll look at everything. What do you want? I send them home with a basket full of whatever I have. Yeah. You know, I think just maybe our own enthusiasm as farmers and growers, it's kind of contagious. You know, when you're totally. passionate about anything, passion is fascinating. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fun to be around. It's interesting. It's exciting. And it's inclusive. You know, you can't help but be part of it when somebody's really excited about something. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for everything that you've shared. This has been such a pleasure to chat with you and very much looking forward to the book. Oh, you too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.